remember here that we're dealing with the question about whether the environmental impact for a coal mining proposal should include the effects on, of greenhouse gas emissions from end users burning the coal. This is the question in grey versus the Minister for Planning and others from 2006 in the New South Wales Land and Environment Court. This is a judicial review of decision making and in particular we're focused on the decision of the Director General to deem the environmental impact statement as adequate under part 3A of the Environmental Planning and Assessment Act in New South Wales. Now part 3A no longer exists because the legislation was amended um, and uh, that part, part 3A for major projects was um, repealed so it's no longer part of the Act. So we've discussed the case, uh, what the, uh, the, the standing was and what the grounds were in relation to Peter Gray uh, bringing the case before the court. We're now going to take a bit more of a look about uh, precedent, the question of precedent. So we've looked at precedent in our previous uh, examples of cases as the way that the court tries to provide some consistency in its decision making. So it is, the court is bound by certain questions of law um, which have been found by previous courts and uh, those, those, those decisions need to be followed and that's the role of precedent. We're looking here at slide number 37 and dealing with the question of precedent in this case. So there was a couple of issues of uh, precedent that influenced the decision in this case. One of those was the importance of the principles of ecologically sustainable development for decision making um, under the legislation. And you can see the list of cases on the slide, that's slide 37, that provide um, the sources for, for that precedent. What's the precedent? The precedent is that ecologically sustainable development principles are important for decision makers uh, who are making those choices or decisions under planning law. So the second precedent that's relevant is that the key purpose of environmental assessment is to provide information about the impact of the proposal and to inform the decision maker with adequate information it's an important part of the context uh, of the proposal that the decision maker has in order to make an informed decision. So in this case in particular we were dealing with how um, the principle of intergenerational equity was relevant um, to providing um, adequate information uh, in the environmental impact statement.
So the principle of intergenerational equity contains an important consideration, which is to consider cumulative impacts of proposals. Now on slide 39, you'll see that a failure to consider these cumulative proposals means that an environmental impact will not be adequately addressed. And the case that contains that precedent is BT Goldsmith. So the ultimate outcome in relation to intergenerational equity, according to the precedent of the court, is that cumulative impacts are important. And that's certainly an issue that we'll come back to again. In particular, we'll come back to that in week nine, where we deal with the Wallangta case. So in this instance, the Anvil Hill case, there is a failure to take account of the principle of intergenerational equity. If the scope three emissions have not been assessed, then there is a failure to take account of the principle of intergenerational equity. And you'll see reference to that on slide 40. Now on slide 41, um, it reiterates that this failure to consider scope three emissions in the original EIS, which meant that the principle of intergenerational equity was not initially taken into consideration, was a breach of the legal requirement. And that sort of question, that question of a breach of law is something that's appropriate for a judicial review case. So we're not dealing with the merits appeal here about whether or not the coal mine ought to go ahead. We're looking at whether the decisions that were made in the process of approving the proposal, whether they were made in accordance with the law. And in this instance, the court was of the view that failure to um, account for the scope three emissions in the original EIS, which the Director General approved as being adequate, was a breach of the Director General's duties under the uh, Environmental Planning and Assessment Act. So that's in relation to intergenerational equity, but the precautionary principle was also an issue. And on slide 40, 42, you'll see that Telstra versus Hornsby Shire Council is the case that provides us with precedent on the precautionary principle. That case, the Telstra and Hornsby Shire Council case, requires that uh, there's an assumption that there is or will be a serious or irreversible threat of environmental harm and that that needs to be taken into account, notwithstanding that there is a degree of scientific uncertainty about whether the threat exists. So again, that case gives us the precedent that an assumption needs to be made within the decision-making process to adequately account for the precautionary principle. So here we are on slide 42, and that assumption is that 
there is or will be a serious or irreversible threat of environmental harm and that that needs to be taken into account, notwithstanding that there is a degree of scientific uncertainty about whether the threat exists. That's the precautionary principle. Importantly, Telstra and Hornsby Shire Council also provides us with two thresholds or conditions precedent that need to be met in the application of the precautionary principle. The first of those is that there be a threat of serious or irreversible environmental harm and secondly that there be a degree of scientific uncertainty about the threat. Now if there is a threat of serious or irreversible environmental harm and there is also a degree of scientific uncertainty about the threat then the proponent has to demonstrate that the threat does not exist or is negligible. That's what the Telstra versus Hornsby Shire precedent says that the court uh, says that the law is that the court needs to apply when we're talking about how the precautionary principle works in um, planning approval processes. So that's how precedent applies. Precedent applies um, in the application of intergenerational equity and precedent applies in the way that the precautionary principle applies. But there is a point of difference from precedent in Anvil Hill and that is important because what that means is that the court is exploring a question of law for which precedent doesn't exist so it needs to follow the courts the previous courts findings on the precautionary principle and on intergenerational equity but then there are also um, an area of the case which is a point of difference from those existing precedents and this is what you'll see on slide number 43 So with Anvil Hill, we have a, a case which is focused on the decision-making process in an environmental assessment stage of the process, not on the final decision about whether the project should be approved. And this is the point of difference. Previous cases had been concerned with decisions to approve or not approve a proposal and a judicial review in that context. But here, the court was not dealing with the final decision maker's decision. They were dealing with a decision that was made as a part of the process that was underpinning the final decision maker's decision. So it was a point of distinction from the previous cases. So we're dealing with this um, decision of the Director General made during the environmental assessment stage. And in that context, as being um, a part of a decision-making process, the extent that the precautionary principle applied was not, um, was not yet determined. So it's not a question that had been before the court. Yes, the court had considered how the precautionary principle applied to a final decision to approve or not approve a proposal but this question about the role of the precautionary principle um, 
in this uh, decision-making role of the Director General about the adequacy of environmental assessment had not been a question that the court had had to deal with before. So essentially the court dealt with that by determining that the Director General in making those decisions needed to ensure that there was sufficient information from the environmental assessment to be put before the Minister to enable all relevant matters to be considered and the precautionary principle was a relevant consideration. Now because of that the Director General had failed to comply with the legal requirement by failing to take account of the precautionary principle as well as intergenerational equity in the decision to allow or to deem the EIS as an adequate assessment and you'll see that on slide number 44. What were some of the other arguments that were presented in the case? Well, in, uh, in defence, the Director-General argued that the Scope 3 emissions were not sufficiently approximate to the project to be considered as direct consequences. They were, the DG argued, independent um, separ and separate from the Anvil Hill proposal itself. And you can see that on slide number 45. However, the court rejected that argument and found that there was a sufficient causal link between mining projects and the greenhouse gas emissions from the burning of coal from those coal mining projects. You can see that on slide number 46. So ultimately, Gray was successful in arguing that the Director-General's decision to accept the environmental assessment was null and void. But that didn't stop the mine from going ahead, it was still approved. Now importantly after this case you see um, the um, parliamentary lawmaking powers in, in operation here because um, what happened after the Anvil Hill case was that the New South Wales Parliament amended the Environmental Planning and Assessment Act to remove the requirement under Part 3A that a minister could only approve a project in that assessment stream after the environmental assessment requirements were met. And that's on slide number 49. So just to recap there, after the Anvil Hill decision by the New South Wales Land and Environment Court, the government in New South Wales moved an amendment in Parliament to the Act which removed the requirement for um, a proposal to fully meet environmental assessment requirements under Part 3A, which was what the issue had been in this case. So the Parliament removed that requirement, um, which meant that it no longer was an issue. Now that was not the end of the change to the legislation, um, because the whole of Part 3 was later repealed in a review of the in a, in a review of the entire. Um, planning framework. So the legislation was amended and Part 3A 
was repealed or knocked out of the Act so that it no longer existed. What that means for the Anvil Hill case is that the principles of that case, the precedent that it sets, um, the decision that was made, remain a valid statement of the law. And what is that statement? Well, that statement is that ecologically sustainable development principles must be taken into account and scope 3 emissions are part of that assessment. And that's something you'll find on slide 50. So if part 3a has been removed, what's replaced it? And well, it's been replaced with a new assessment process, which is now under section 4.36 of the Act and known as State Significant Development. So we've talked in Anvil Hill so far about um, the decision-making under state law. So the judicial review to the Land and Environment Court was about the decision um, that the Director-General made about the adequacy of the environmental impact statement. And that was something that occurred under New South Wales law. But what about environmental assessment under Commonwealth law, under the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act? Well, there was that question that was also raised, um, and it was a question that was put before the federal court because the federal court is the body that deals with questions about application of Commonwealth law. What happened with Anvil Hill was that a delegate of the federal environment minister decided that the coal mine proposal was not a controlled action for the purposes of the EPBC Act. Now that decision to um, identify Anvil Hill as not being a controlled action for the purpose of the Federal Act was challenged in the Federal Court. So here we're dealing with a challenge to a decision uh, under the Administrative Decisions Judicial Review Act, the Federal Law, just like in the Bell Bay pulp mill case that we talked about last week. Now that case if you wanted to look it up, is called Anvil Hill Project Watch Association Incorporated versus the Minister for Environment and Water, case from 2007 in the Federal Court of Australia. It was an unsuccessful claim, um, so the court on the, the um, material that was presented about the decision um, not to identify the proposal as a controlled action found that, um, that that decision was the, the correct one and therefore there were no errors of law that related to decision making under the EPBC Act. So that didn't go anywhere else. So back to the question of judicial review in general and um, what a reminder about what judicial review means in terms of access to justice. And this is where we, we come into contact with the questions of, of costs. 
and you'll see more about this on slide number 61. The unsuccessful party in Anvil Hill had to pay most of Gray's costs as well as their own. If Gray had been the unsuccessful party, then he's the one who would have had to pay most of the costs. So that was a significant risk that Peter Gray was taking by bringing, bringing the, the decision or bringing the question to the court because if he had been unsuccessful in his claim he would have ended up paying for um, most of the costs associated with it. So that's a risk assessment about whether to bring a case for judicial review in the first place. So even though there is this open standing provision that allows anyone to bring a case uh, to the court for judicial review if there's a, a breach of the Act, uh, that open standing certainly needs to be considered in the context of the risk that if you're unsuccessful, you end up paying, paying the costs. Is this the case also for merits appeal? Well, it's um, a bit different in merits appeal. There is a risk assessment involved, but the risk assessment is not so much focused on costs alone. Because in a merits appeal case, the court has discretion to award costs in a way that it sees fit. And you can see more about that on slides 64 through to 69. So under merits appeal, which is different to judicial review, the court can decide where the costs, um, where the costs go, who pays the costs in uh, bringing the action before the court. In judicial review, however, it is usually the losing party who pays most of the costs, except for the case where um, there is a public interest exemption. So remember, in the pulp mill case in Tasmania, um, the, the federal court found that initially there was a public interest exemption uh, in the group that was bringing the case to the court for judicial review. And so they did not have to pay the costs associated with that first decision. But there is an element of risk assessment in merits appeal. Um, and that is that uh, you can achieve a definitive outcome. So what I mean there is that in the merits appeal, you can achieve the outcome of the proposal being refused or approved. And in that sense, um, the ruling of the court is that each party will only pay their own costs in bringing the case. So there's not such a financial risk there. And you also get a definite outcome. Um, whereas a judicial review cannot, does not necessarily alter the outcome um, of, the, of, the, of the development 
it can just establish whether or not there is um, a breach of law in the way that the decisions have been made. And the, uh, the risk from the judicial review is that if you lose, you pay. So there's, a, there's that difference in, um, in weighing up the risks and benefits between a judicial review and a merits appeal. So the court does make um, this valid distinction, as I pointed out with the example um, from Bell Bay, thinking back to that, that first case in the Bell Bay series of cases, that there is a valid distinction to be made between um, litigation of private interests and enforcing public interest obligations and upholding access to justice. So if there is a general public interest obligation or um, public interest in bringing the case to the court, then the court will be able to acknowledge that by um, recognising that the public interest bearer in this case, so the person who's bringing the case in the public interest, does not need to pay the costs of that case. So the court has some discretion in that regard. Um, however, if there's, if the question is one that relates to enforcement of private interests, then the court will uh, award or, or make orders to pay costs where those costs fall. Um, and if it's the private interests who need to pay, then uh, then so be it, because they're protecting their own private interests, not the public good. So that's just to reinforce that there is a distinction between the private interest and the public interest uh, and the way that the court assigns costs. So that's another distinction to make between merits appeal and judicial review. Now just quickly before we finish back to assignments, um, thanks to those who have submitted assignment one on time. Several of you have opted to take the seven day extension uh, as you're entitled to do and those with the extensions just um, be aware that you should expect that feedback will also be delayed as a result of those assignments not yet being submitted. Um, Assignment 2, just a reminder that it's due on the 6th of September, as well as the need to post it on the Moodle site. Um, if you're doing JEPL 535, you also have to remember that you have an Assignment 3. Please, if you have any questions about Assignment 2 or 3, um, or indeed about the podcast, post them to Moodle. Thanks very much.